0: Matthew 7, beginning at verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to obstruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small, the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. but he who does the will of my Father is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I know if you look at your bulletin, it says we're going to be talking about recognizing false prophets, but we are going to do that, but not in the sermon today because I'm about to miss out on a, a crucial passage in verses 13 and 14 that tie in with recognizing false prophets, but we need to understand what Jesus has said here and clear up any confusion that some have with reference to verses 13 and 14. This passage in verses 13 and 14 is dealing with the true nature of the gospel as defined by Jesus himself. Jesus is the one who defines what the nature of the gospel is, not men, although men try to do so. But it doesn't matter what men think. The only thing that really matters is what God thinks, and we need to understand what God thinks, what Jesus has said. And we're going to see that understanding verses 13 and 14 will help us to understand the nature of false prophets and how we are to recognize them. There are some that look at verses 13 and 14 and say to those of us, and I'll define the term here for a moment. They will look and say, you post-millennialists who believe in the victory of the gospel who believe that King Jesus is reigning, who believe that the world will be evangelized someday. sure doesn't sound that's what Jesus is talking about here in verses 13 and 14. Because Jesus says the, word, the, uh, the gate is narrow that leads to life. And there are few to enter that gate. As opposed to those uh, who are on a wide gate, where there's a broad path, and there's a whole bunch of people on that path. Sure doesn't sound very victorious-oriented. Well, as as all things, we need to understand passages in their context. Uh, We need to understand the historical basis of that. So I am going to address that point, but that's not going to be the main emphasis of the message and where we're going because we ought not to miss the importance of, of the gospel as Jesus sets forth for us. Now, as we look at verses 13 through verse 23, it's one of the most... Well, all of God's Word is important. But it's, it's a portion of God's Word that we need to be very aware of. We need to pay close attention to because... Of what is mentioned here. The, the sobriety of the passage. Uh, our soul's destiny hinges upon our understanding of this section of scripture. The worst thing that could ever happen to anyone is to be deluded. Self-delusion is a terrible uh, thing to be... Uh, engaged in, to think all is well with our soul when in reality it's not well. This is one of the most, verses 21 and 23, although that will be the subject for another message, it's one of the most frightening passages for anybody, especially preachers, because it centers in on preachers here, those who have done works in the name of Jesus, It's very frightening in one sense to think there are those who cast out demons. There are those who prophesied uh, in Jesus' name. That there were those who did, quote, good works. And then for Jesus to say to them, I never knew you, that's terrifying. That's a person who thinks all is well. That's a person who dies thinking they're going to heaven when they're not. There are all these prophets who uh, prophesy, who think they're prophesying in the name of the true God, and they're not. They're false prophets. They're, they're ravenous wolves. They are devouring the sheep. They're leading people astray. Jesus says, beware of these, of these false prophets. Know them by their fruit. But we've got to understand the gospel. And not the gospel that we prefer But the gospel that Jesus teaches, the gospel and the only gospel that can save a person from their sins. You know, we don't have the right to decide how, um, what it means to be a Christian. I don't have that right. You don't have that right to decide for yourself what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is what Jesus says a Christian is. What a disciple is. Jesus defines it for us. And so I can define it all I want. But what matters is is how He defines it. And we need to understand how He defines it. After all, He is the great judge on Judgment Day. The Bible says that the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. That's what He has done. And we see here that we've got to keep in mind that Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, He is correcting pharisaical uh, misconceptions of the law of God. He is uh, correcting a misunderstanding of what it means to enter the kingdom of God. Remember, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, there in chapter uh, 5, he says, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So, we're going to see in this, this passage of Scripture, verses 13 to 23, It's one of the most important passages in all of the Word of God. And it really requires all of us to be engaged in self-examination. The Bible calls us to that. You see, the gospel is twofold in its thrust. Here's how it's twofold. First of all, you have to believe the right things about God. You have to believe the right things about Jesus, or you're not a Christian. In other words, you have to understand sound doctrine with reference to God. Without understanding sound doctrine with reference to God, you're not a Christian. The second thrust of the gospel is not only what we understand cognitively with our minds, about certain truths, we must bear fruit in our lives that that gives evidence of the fact that something has happened to change changes from being creatures that were dwelling in darkness and that we've come out of darkness into His marvelous light. That we are not we're not uh, old creatures, but we have become new creatures. That that our hearts that were once Stony hearts have become hearts of stone. There is evidence of that. Our text deals with this. So, as we understand the gospel, Jesus wants us to understand very carefully you need to get it right about me, and you need to be sure that you haven't deceived yourself, and uh, that your life is not bearing testimony. That there has been a transformation in your life. You see, both are absolutely necessary to be a Christian. The knowledge and the life. The knowledge and the life. The knowledge leads into the life. (coughs) So Jesus says, pay close attention Because narrow is the gate that leads into life. And there are a few that are on that path. And so you see, we can get, the the thing about it is this we can get certain facts correct about Jesus and still be lost. It happens all the time. In fact, Jesus says, You can appear to be doing good works when in reality, you're not doing good works for me. You're doing it for yourself. And that's why he says, you can prophesy my name. You can cast out demons. And you can do certain things that you think are very good. And Jesus will not own up to us on judgment day. See how important it is? Every time, I'm telling you, every time I read this passage... There is a certain element of fear. It's designed to be that. For for all of us. I'm not the one preaching on it. I've got to be sure I'm not one of these false prophets. That I'm not deceiving myself. And you've got to be sure you're not deceiving yourself. And so what we see here, we, we live in an age where the gospel is being assaulted from all various angles. One of the greatest problems in our culture is that, as you are quite aware, is that we want to make salvation open to everybody, no matter what they believe. I mean, this is what we call pluralism. Uh, As I mentioned uh, last week, we see it in the fact that the pluralist mindset Emphasizes sincerity of belief no matter what the content is. And therefore, they want to open it up to anybody who's sincere, anybody who's religious. Well, need I remind you that the Pharisees were very religious people, they were the teachers of the law. They were supposed to teach God's law, they added to it. But then they distorted it, and no people gave Jesus more trouble than the Pharisees. And Jesus, uh, no other group of people did Jesus have such stinging rebukes than to many. Now, not, not all of the Pharisees were whitewashed tombs. We do know there were some Pharisees, uh, a small group that believed in Jesus. Nicodemus was one of them. But as a whole, they missed the boat, as we could say. They thought they were attaining righteousness, but they never attained it. And so what we see in our day is this notion that's becoming more readily apparent, that that we need to be inclusive and we need to resist this idea of being exclusive. Exclusive. And, and the, the, the reality is this, throughout the history of the church, someone was even asking me this, and we were on the 4th of July and had, uh, with some family, and we were discussing certain things, and someone said, well, what do you think is, um, John is the problem? Uh, that we see in our country. And I say, well, one of the major problems is that we have now come to the point that we just want to open the doors for anybody, regardless of what they believe. But And, and someone said, what is, uh, why were Christians persecuted historically? Well, if you read church history, beginning from the Lord Jesus to the apostles, and then uh, in, in their dealings with the unbelieving Jews, and then with pagan Rome, you're going to find this. Pagan Rome had no problem with pluralist. They, the Jews, they, they let the Jews worship plenty of times, and it wasn't a problem in Rome. There was a lot of uh, differing religions in Rome, and Rome tolerated it as long as... As long as you gave your token uh, homage to Caesar, who simply said, I'm God. And as long as you acknowledged and went into one of his temples and did your little whatever it is and acknowledged that Caesar is divine, all was well. And those low-down Christians who are narrow-minded, they had to come along and say, We're not going to do it. We're not going to acknowledge Jesus I mean Caesar as Lord. In fact, that's what got the Christians into trouble in Thessalonica. When we are told in that in that section in, in, when Paul and the apostles came into uh, Thessalonica and they were dealing with the unbelieving Jews in the synagogues and Uh, There was a lot of trouble stirred up for the apostles, and what the the unbelieving Jews did, they went to the civil authorities, and here's what they said. It's recorded in the scripture. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, teaching there is another king besides Caesar. King Jesus. And on that basis, Rome for 200, no, actually for 400 years until Constantine will persecute the Christian church. Because we were narrow-minded, because we believe what this passage teaches, narrow is the day that leads into life. On May 22nd of this year, the new pope of Rome, shocked many when he declared that even atheists who do good are redeemed, not just good Catholics. Let me give you his quote. It was a homily he gave on a Wednesday on that date. He says, the Lord has redeemed all of us, all of us, with the blood of Christ, all of us, not just Catholics, everyone. Father, the atheists, Even the atheists, everyone, we must meet one another doing good, but I don't believe, Father, I'm an atheist, but do good, we will meet one another there, end of quote, Pope Francis. As long as you seek to do good, even though you don't believe in God, you're going to make it. Now, that is consistent dogma with Rome. one of the priests explained, Pope, if it wasn't clear enough, he explained what Pope Francis said. And uh, this one said, he says, Pope Francis is saying more clearly than ever before that Christ offered himself as a sacrifice to everyone. That's always been a Christian belief you can find St. Paul saying in the first letter to Timothy that Jesus gave himself as a, quote, ransom for all. But rarely do you hear it said by Catholics so forcefully and with such evident joy. And in this era of religious controversies, it is a timely reminder that God cannot be confined to, you ready, narrow categories, end of quote. God can't be confined to narrow categories categories. Well, really. Let me just quote to you what Jesus said. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. Many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads into life. And few are those who find it. Now, <clears throat> what is our culture telling us today? Today, as you are quite aware, it is telling us you can be a practicing homosexual and make it into the kingdom of heaven. That is what our culture is saying. And if you don't believe that, and if you preach against that, you give any indication that you don't adhere to that, you are considered a hate monger. You're considered someone to oppose. Even though the scripture is very clear in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, where it says all those who practice that lifestyle will not enter the kingdom of heaven.
1: But I need to remind you,
0: it's not just the homosexuals that don't enter the kingdom. All those who, it says, practicing idolaters, practicing thieves, uh, those who are covetous, it says there in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, they're not going to make it either. So it's not just... Uh, Anyone doing it. Um, just this recently, read a little blurb. You got Wimbledon tennis being played in Wimbledon, England. I've been to Wimbledon town. A guy, a preacher, was just arrested the other day for preaching just about sin, about just heterosexual sins, and he linked homosexuals, was arrested for a hate crime. Uh, could have faced up to five to six months to be uh, go to trial, but they decided to let him go. They did release him. But you have those. I don't know all that's indicated. The, the preacher got beat up out in Washington State by uh, the homosexual mob. Beat, beat the street preacher up just recently. Anybody that wants to say Narrow the way to eternal life. They are suspect. But Jesus says narrow is the way. Now, as I mentioned to you, there are those who use this passage, and we've got to deal with it. And I know somebody was bound to ask me, so I'm going to deal with it anyway the sermon. How do you interpret verses 13 and 14 in light of the postmillennial hope of the victory of the gospel? And it sounds like there's not going to be a lot of people saved. That's what it sort of sounds like. Anytime you interpret the Scriptures, you've got to interpret it in its historical context. And it's very important here. We're going to take a look at some passages and, and put Jesus' comments in a historical context. Now, first of all, <clears throat> Knowing the grammar is very helpful. I want you to look very closely at verses 13 and 14. Now, here's what the Greek grammar is saying. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who are presently entering by it. That is a true rendering of the text. Those who are presently entering into it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow, that is presently leading to life, and few are those who are presently finding it. Now you may think, what's the big deal here? Jesus is not so much talking about some prophetic end of what the state of affairs of who, what number of the elect is going to be here. That's not what he's discussing. He's discussing what is happening in his ministry and what the dynamics that are going on. Very few are heeding him is what he's saying. Very few. And uh, there are those who are, and he says, presently, there are a lot on this wide path leading to destruction. And he said, there are few that are presently finding this life. Now, there were a lot of people, as you know, that were following Jesus. Jesus. He was the great miracle worker, was he not? We're told that great crowds oftentimes gathered, and there are many times that there, that Jesus would turn to the crowd. We're going to talk about one in a minute, and lay something out. But all of a sudden, he would just, as it were, filter out this crowd. There are those who have fallen in because of his signs, and he says, "There's an evil every an evil generation seeks signs." And there are those, uh, we're told in John 6, that when he began to get specific about himself as being the bread of life, he's got to eat of his body, drink of his blood, to to enter in, all of a sudden that became offensive to people. And it says in John 6 that many of his disciples did not follow him anymore. And then Jesus turns to the twelve and says, You going to leave also? And that's when Peter says, well, Lord, to whom are we going to go? Only you have the words of eternal life. See, a disciple simply means a follower. There were many people following Jesus, but then when he began to uh, become specific at what it meant to follow him, then the crowd begins to get uh, dispersed significantly. Now... You know, one of the things, when you when you interpret a passage, when you deal with this passage, remember, the Word of God is not contradictory, right? Now, we are the perspective that there is no contradiction in the Word of God. Now, for the liberals, they could care less. There are all kinds of contradictions. The Bible is just one of them. No, we're not that perspective because we know that God's Word is true. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God doesn't lie. So there's not going to be a contradiction in the word of God. So how do we take this verse that seems to imply that the number of the elect are going to be few at the end of history, when we have passages in the scriptures, for example, that we talked about in Isaiah, where it says the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, where it says in Isaiah that all the nations shall stream to Mount Zion to learn of the law of God, And it says the nations will beat their swords into plowshares and will learn war no more. When you have in Psalm 22, it talks about all the families of the earth will worship the Lord. When we talk about the Great Commission, when we get to that part in Matthew 28, it says all the nations will be discipled, meaning not just evangelized, they will be discipled of the promises of the new covenant where it says that uh, the Lord uh, will work in people's lives, that there will come a time that when someone says to his neighbor, do you know the Lord? It says they will all know the Lord, from the smallest to the greatest. Talking about this uh, uh, great working of God worldwide, that Jesus must reign until he's put his enemies under his feet. All of this. How do you fit that passage? So what is Jesus talking about? You can't contradict it. Again, the historical context is important. Let me help you then with this historical context. For example, keep in mind that Jesus did not go to the Gentiles in his ministry. Nor did the, the apostles go to the Gentiles in their ministry prior to The resurrection and ascension. Turn with me to Matthew 10. I'll jump ahead in our study. But look at Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6. Now, Jesus is sending out the disciples, all right, to do marvelous things. He has empowered them to have power over demons and actually the power to heal. Look at verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was the emphasis there. Now, we're going to see it changes substantially later. While Jesus was ministering, he says, go to the house of Israel. Turn over to Matthew 15, look at verse 24. Well, let's let's begin at verse 21 because it's an interesting story here in how Jesus uh, talks about a, a Canaanite woman coming to him. It says in verse 21, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Behold, a Canaanite woman came Out from that region began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came to him and kept asking him, saying, Send her away, for she is shouting out after us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But, She came out and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said, Oh, woman, your faith is great. Be it done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. He didn't go into the Canaanite regions. He didn't respond initially. He says, I've been sent to the lost ship of Israel. I am the Messiah. I have come to declare myself the king of the Jews. I'm the long-awaited Messiah. And I'm out to reach covenant Israel. He sent his twelve apostles to covenant Israel at first. Now, the woman kept persisting. And he granted her uh, healing because of her persistence, even though she was a Gentile. Take a look at uh, Matthew chapter 8, verses 10 through 12. Now, when Jesus heard this, well, let me give you a set the context, and then we'll break into verse 10. The context is the, the centurion, a Roman centurion soldier, uh, has a child lying paralyzed, suffering in great pain. He tells Jesus, look, you don't need to come and see him personally. I, I'm, I'm a soldier. I give orders, and people follow me. All you have to say, Jesus, is be healed, and I know my son will be healed. So, now, this is, the, this is the setting. So, Jesus, in verse 10, says, Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone where? In Israel. And I say to you that many shall come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, go your way, let it be done to you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very hour. Now what's important here is, just in chapter 7, We have this notion, it seems like the elect are going to be very limited in numbers. And just one chapter later, Jesus says that there's going to be a time when people will come from the east and the west. There's going to be a lot of people coming into the kingdom. That's what he says here. It says that they will come and they will recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are the patriarchs of Israel, right? So all these Gentiles, Jesus predicts these Gentiles are going to flood in to uh, the faith, and they will recline with the believing Jews. And notice he says there are sons of the kingdom. There are some Jews that he says that are not sons of the kingdom. They are, if we may say, citizens of the kingdom in an external sense. But Jesus says they're not internal citizens of the kingdom. And in fact, he says they are going to be cast out into the outer darkness. So, we need to understand that passage, this passage, to help us understand what Jesus is talking about. He was sent to Israel. The apostles were sent to the cities of Israel. Jesus is dealing with unbelief that is prominent among the Jews. That's why he marveled at the Canaanite woman. That's why he marveled at the uh, Roman centurion. These were Gentiles who were believing while these Jews weren't believing. Take a look also at Luke 13. Look at verses 22 through 30. Now this is important because it's a uh, Luke's version of Matthew's account. That's what makes this important. Luke 13, look at verses 22 through 30. And he was passing through from one city and a village to another, teaching, proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter by the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us, then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence. You taught us in in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, There, when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being cast out. And they will come from east and west and from north and south, and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some who are first shall be last. So Jesus, somebody's asked him. There are going to be a few being saved, Jesus. And who does he reference? He's referencing the Jews at the time. He's referencing the fact there are some who are not going to make it. Who are of covenant Israel. Some not going to make it. He says you better strive to enter by me. You have to believe in me, he says, if you're going to make it. And so, when we consider this context, this historical context that Jesus is setting for us, he's not making some prophetic announcement of what it will be like at the end of history. He is referencing what is going on. In that present ministry, in what the dynamics are happening among those Jews, and Jesus will deal with the lost sheep of Israel, and in His day, all of this is leading up, leading up to 70 A.D., when Jesus will come and He will destroy Jerusalem. Why? Because of their unbelief, because they rejected Him. Narrow is the way. He's talking to the Jews. Narrow is the way that leads into life. small is the gate. Don't stumble over me. Take a look at Romans 9. Look at verse 30 through 33. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Jesus says, I have been sent to Israel as the Messiah. I am the way. I am the promised one. And the only way you are going to make it is through me. Not by yourself. No other way. Me. It's a narrow way. Did not Jesus say in John fourteen six, I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the Father but by me. That's exclusive. You can't do it. The Jews tried to do it by their own righteousness. And they stumbled. Because they didn't come. And and those Gentiles, they will get the promise because they believe Jesus. They didn't stumble over Jesus. But the Jews did. And most of them did not believe Jesus. Most of the Jews did not believe Jesus. You know, Acts 4.12 says... And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. No other name. It is a narrow way. The gate that leads to life is narrow. Jesus. This is why it says in John 10, there is no other way. I'll talk about John 10 in a moment. One thing is sure is that in this passage, let no one presume upon the grace and the mercy of God. This is why 2 Corinthians 13.5 is so important. Just take a look at that passage for a moment. I'll probably be mentioning it in several sermons to come. (laughs) 2 Corinthians 13.5 Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? And We're going to see, as I mentioned already, To be a Christian means you have to believe the right things intellectually about Jesus. But it can't stop there. It's got to go to the heart. Because if it rains in the head, we'll never make it. It's got to impact the heart. And so that's why he says, examine yourselves to see if Jesus is in you. Now get that, if that Jesus is in you. That's definitely implying that there is something that has happened, as the Scripture says, when we do believe, like uh, St. Corinthians also talks about in, in chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Examine yourselves to see if you're a new creation. <clears throat> The Sermon on the Mount was intended to be lived. It's very pointed, as we have seen. Uh, The exhortations are very individually oriented. They are biting in the sense that it really brings out the nature of who people are and how they think. And so we need to... Understand this about the narrowness of the gospel. We must not think just because one day God's grace and mercy is going to be shown to many people, because that is the promise of the scriptures. I mean, that's why it says the nations of the earth are going to be uh, followed. I mean, will be blessed that they will come to Christ. But just because that is some future blessing should not cause us to examine ourselves of where we stand right now. Because that's what matters. You know, wherever the gospel has been and has been proclaimed, the gospel is not very popular. Has never been very popular And why? Well, Jesus says where the crowds are, the crowds are on the broad path of destruction. And uh, if you turn to, to Luke 14, turn over to Luke 14, look at verse 25. Now, great multitudes were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and his wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he goes on to talk about calculating the cost. Jesus sorted out the crowd that day. He sorted out the crowd. Who is my follower? Someone who has has me as Lord in reality. Not just with the profession of mouth, but has me as Lord in how they are living. So what does it mean to live under the Lordship of Christ? He is number one in my life, regardless of everybody else, father, mother, brothers, sisters. doesn't matter. Jesus has to be number one. If He's not number one, He says, "You don't, you're not my disciple. You willing to give up all to follow Me? Now, he said this to a great multitude. You willing to give up everything? Well, most of them weren't willing to give up everything. So he sorted out the crowd that day. He sifted the crowd, as God always sifts people. You know, choosing to be a Christian means that we separate ourselves unto Christ and we distance ourselves from the world. You know what the greatest hindrance to becoming a Christian is? Worldliness. Worldliness. That's the greatest hindrance. It's making a break with the world. See, Satan is called the god of this world for a reason. He is the god of a world in rebellion against God. And it's thinking. What does 1 John two fifteen and 16 says is love not the world, neither the things in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of, the, of life, is of the world, not of the Father. And he who has the love of the world, the love of the Father, is not in him. You know what that means? We're not a Christian. The Christian separates from the world. They think differently. That's why it says that we are a new creation. We don't think the same as we used to think. You know what was the great evidence that the Thessalonians had come to Christ? Now, remember, Thessalonica was a Macedonian city, and only 50 miles away was Mount Olympus, the, the, uh, the mountain of the gods, the Greek gods. Uh, <clears throat> paganism, the worship of those gods was 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 pervasive in Thessalonica. And there, in First Thessalonians, it says, "What was the proof that God had worked?" It says they no longer served those idols. Well, let me tell you something: if you didn't serve those idols in Thessalonica, you were pointed out as being weird and being not in step, and subject to being persecuted. You're not, you're not like everybody else. So those people who became Christians, who no longer distanced themselves from the world's philosophy, they stood out. But that's the way it's been with the Lord's people throughout history. You know, the world, the Bible says, the world hates Jesus. And Jesus says, don't be surprised if it hates you. He says, don't be surprised when you get persecuted. So he tells us later on. We'll look at that Matthew. Don't be shocked when the world persecutes you. Because they hated me first. Those are the words he used. They hated me first. And it says, the servant is not greater than the master. If they hate the master, they're going to hate you, the servant. So if you're the servant, don't be surprised if you're hated, because they hate the master. The world hates Jesus. That's why the world is saying today, we Christians who are maintaining uh, our insistence that homosexuality is a a godless lifestyle that must be repented of, that's why they're going to view us as, as the weird people, the out-of-step ones, the, uh, the lack of, the, those who like to prefer to hate rather than love. They want to make this false dichotomy. They don't understand the love of God. And therefore, do not be surprised when they begin to persecute us for this. That's the way it's always been. The world hates Jesus. The world longs for pluralism, the world wants everybody, everybody can make it. You know, that's that's the problem. <clears throat> the world wants, wants God to cut a break for everybody. That's what the whole coexist thing is, I referred to last week. We need to coexist. We need to learn to live with other faiths. We don't... And for you Christians, to be so dogmatic to insist only on Jesus, well, you're a troublemaker, you're a troublemaker, and we'll be persecuted for that. You know, I'm a big fan of uh, George Whitfield. Whitfield first came to America, and uh, he came during a time, what's called in Americas the Great Awakening," that was going on in New England. Jonathan Edwards in Northampton, Massachusetts, uh, <clears throat> was part of that great awakening that lasted about four years in New England. And as <clears throat> Whitfield met with uh, Edwards, and, uh, and then when Whitfield went into Boston, and he was uh, received very well in Boston among most of the preachers there, received him very well, but there was a very prominent creature, who (coughs) did not like Whitfield, opposed Whitfield in the revivals. Uh, This man's name was Charles Chauncey, very prominent individual, church clergyman in Boston. He wrote against the revivals. Uh, Jonathan Edwards would do verbal battle with him. Now, the thing about it is, some of the problems that Chauncey were having were legitimate about some of the revivals. There was a lot of emotionalism going on, and some places it was getting out of hand. Even Jonathan Edwards will address that problem. But then, I'm going I'm to really paraphrase Edwards with a modern term. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's <laughs> Edward says, "Yeah, there's some problems with emotionalism going on, but let me tell you something. All the other things God's doing is a real work of God, and we ought to praise God for it." Now, here's the problem with Chauncey. Chauncey, <clears throat> though he may have had a point in the emotionalism, here's what he said. Chauncey says, "We need, we have Scripture, and we ought to value Scripture, but God has given us reason." And reason is equally as important as the revelation of God. See, right there, that'll be time out. That's trouble right there. That's trouble right there. Someone who elevates reason to the level of the revelation. And so um, Edwards will do battle in the press against Chauncey and, and all that. Chauncey. Will be a pastor of that church in Boston for 60 years. 60 years. In 1784, long after Whitfield has died, Whitfield will die in 1770. Uh, Edward will have died before that. In 1784, Chauncey will write a book titled, they always, this is crazy how they pile books. I'm going to give you the short version. The short version is The Mystery Hid From Ages and Generations or the Salvation of All Men. That's the short version. (laughs) So He wrote this book in 1784 and you know what he did? It's a 402 page book that I have sort of skimmed through in preparation of the book on Preaching the Victory of the Gospel. It is the most... uh, exegetical attempt to prove that everybody is going to make it in the end. Everybody. Everybody. Chauncey will write this book and will champion universalism. And in 1804, a group is emerging in New England called the Unitarians. And the Unitarians do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The Unitarians uh, believe, they deny the Trinity. The Unitarians <clears throat> will believe that man is basically good and that we will all make it in the end. And you know, and you can read universalist Unitarian. Uh, literature, you can go on their website and you know who they acknowledge as the one who gave them the basis to believe that? Charles Thompson, the man who opposed the revivals. And, and the thing about the the, the the Great Awakening revivals is this, the most favorite, sir. I mean, the, the most uh, Bought sermon that Whitfield ever did was called the new birth. It's why the clergymen in, in England didn't like him. Uh, the thing about it is, <clears throat> he talked about the necessity of being born again. Got himself into trouble when he said some of the clergy need to be born again. That didn't go over well with some of the clergy. That's why they sucked the pulpits from him, which forced him out into the open air to preach. They didn't like that either. Later on, he says, I might have been too hard on some of them, but probably not. <laughs> but the new birth. But you see, that's what Chauncey did not like. And 40 years later, he'll write this book. It is, it is incredible, the exegesis he goes through, to try to prove that everybody is going to make it in the end. I sit there and think, you're crazy. You, you're going to use... Page after page after page, try to prove from the Bible, there is no hell. There is no hell. We're all going to make it. And that is what the Unitarians will grab hold of and say, you're the one that started it, Johnson. And then it sent New England down its path where there was once great light. We look at New England today as the what? The bastion of liberalism? The bastion of unbelief? That's the way it is now. But that's not the way it was. It was the, it was the geography of the Puritans. There were some great figures in New England. In the 16th and 17th century, New England was magnificent. But... You let someone come in, and this will lead up to the false prophets I'll talk about next week. Chauncey was a false prophet. Chauncey revealed himself for what he really was, a wolf in sheep's clothing, and he will do immeasurable damage to the visible church. You see, the <clears throat> part of the thing about it is this. Turn to John 10. Look at verses 1 through 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the sheepfold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he's a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens and sheep will hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Jesus is the door. And anybody who doesn't enter that door, and it's a narrow door. See, it is a narrow door. It's only Jesus. It's not Muhammad. It's not Buddha. It's not the New Age. It's only Jesus. It is narrow. And there's no other salvation than any other. you got to believe that. If you don't, you're lost. The Jews, which Jesus was talking about, they didn't believe him. You know when he cried over Jerusalem there in Matthew twenty-three, he talks about how about the prophets who were murdered between the temple uh, in the history of the church, and Jesus says you're about he's to fill up the cup of God's wrath because you're about to kill the Son. Of God. And when you do that, you will fill up to the measure of God's wrath. And he says, see that uh, that temple? He says, the day is coming when not one stone will be left standing in this temple. Jesus no longer calls it his house. He calls it your house. Because they had rejected him. And that's why we're told in Matthew 23, he will weep over Jerusalem. How I would have gathered you under my wings as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not come. You resisted me, the Messiah, the only way, the door, the narrow gate. And for resisting me, you will be utterly destroyed. And so what happened to them in 70 A.D. was only but a earthly manifestation of what happened to their souls. For rejecting the only way. See, the thing about it is, as I try to bring this all together, that passage there in in Matthew 7, 13, 14 is not preaching, it's not teaching against the great post hope. No, that's not its focus. That is going to happen one day. But still, when that happens one day, everybody's going to be rushing into the narrow door, the narrow gate. But that passage was given as a primary thrust to what was happening in Jesus' ministry at that time prior to his death and resurrection. And the Jews as a whole refused to believe we got to maintain the distinctness. And brother, let me tell you, the, the, the culture war that we are experiencing, it's going to get even more heated. Believe me, it's going to get more heated. And it's going to get so heated that there will come a breaking point. Expect, expect persecution for us. I don't wish persecution. I'd like to be on the side where I see everybody streaming into Jerusalem. That's where I'd like to see it, really. That's what I prefer to see. But we're at a point, not unlike other points in in history, whereby it's going to cost you something to be a Christian. That's why I told one of my sons not long ago: "says I expect your generation to be shedding blood." For the cause of Christ. I fully expect that. That's how serious it's becoming. And the world has always hated Jesus. It will continue to hate Jesus. Because he's the only way. But that's the gospel we got to preach. So in this midst of such turmoil, let's remain steadfast and preach only Jesus and that Jesus is the only way. Because in the midst of such turmoil, we can provide hope for people. That's the only hope. That's pray.